Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Well, why don't we open in a word of prayer and uh, we'll get into our study for this semester. Father, thank you so much for this time of study. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you for the privilege of learning and studying and being challenged from it. And I pray that you would challenge us this term as we look at these five wonderful books in the New Testament. I pray that we go out of here not only knowing a little bit more, but having our lives changed by what we've learned. We just thank you for this opportunity of study. In Christ's name, amen. One of the, probably the format we'll follow is um, I usually go to the end of a tape, which is 90 minutes, then we take like a 20-minute break or whatever. Usually it is. It's about 20 minutes. And then um, I put in a 60-minute tape, and we get a chunk of that done, and then we quit. So however long the tape goes is however long our break, our break is. So uh, we usually go about 90 minutes. And uh, a lot of interaction. I mean, if you have questions or you want to talk about something or discuss it, I like having arguments in class. Um, Don and I have had plenty of arguments in class, and he's finally become a Calvinist, which is good, which has reduced a lot of our arguments. Um, we're still working on Josh, but um, <laughs> just joking around. But uh, no, really, this is your class. This is for you to learn. And um, my, the way I start, I, I start at the beginning of the book, verse 1, chapter 1, and I just go from there. And however long it takes us to get through the book, it takes us. And if we get stuck on a verse and have a half-hour discussion, that's fine by me because it's, it's your time to learn. It's, I don't have any set. Uh, I just got to get through the material somehow over the course of the term. But um, it's, I'm flexible, so you know we'll have a lot of discussions as we go along. And uh, I wasn't able to print out my notes tonight, so I'm going high-tech with them on the computer here. But... Normally, I won't have this with me. Um, okay, well, let's open up to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. And uh, this course, in this course, we'll be covering Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then they throw in the little book of Philemon. Um, and quite honestly, to be quite honest with you, th these four books that we're going to go over, um, have a tremendous amount of deep theology in them. I mean, these are books that if you really get your handle on these books, um, you've really got your handle on a good chunk of the Christian faith, particularly the book of Ephesians. I mean, I, I think Ephesians is like the second book that you should study in depth after you study Romans. Um, it, there's just so much there. Um, so much the practical, and, and, and by the way, um, although I love teaching theology and things like that, to me, just knowing theology for the sake of theology doesn't get you anywhere. Um, it has to mean something in your life. I mean, it's one thing to say that God is sovereign. It's another thing to trust him in that when you're going through a trial or a trouble. And that's really where we need to go to. 
Um, we're not here to just get a bunch of facts in our heads and pass tests. You're here to have your life changed by the word. And so that's what we want to strive for. And that's really where I will be heading. As I go through the text, it's practical. Um, how does this apply to you and how can you make it work in your life? And we just start at the beginning and work our way through these books. And uh, the, uh, the syllabus here just gives us a general guideline of how we're going to proceed. Um, we may cover one chapter in a week. We may cover three. depends on how we go. So we'll just uh, take it as it is. Before we um, actually start looking at the book of Galatians, we need to sort of look at some of the, the background of this book and understand why, you know, what is it and why it fits into the canon and what it's all about, sort of get a bird's eye view of the text. Um, one of the things that people do a lot of times is they pick a Bible book or a Bible passage or something. They dive in and they begin interpreting it and they have no idea why it was written in the first place or who it was written to or what is the purpose behind the writing of the book. And uh, if you don't get that down, you can really get yourself off on some rabbit trails pretty quickly by really not understanding the theme of the book. So we need to really get an idea of why was Galatians written and who was it written to. All right. When you go back in church history, you find that uh, very early on this book is mentioned. It was, it was known very early in the church. And, I, uh, and it's interesting, of all of the books in the New Testament, um, Galatians is probably the one that even the liberal scholars, if you go pick up a liberal commentary today, um, they will say it was written by Paul. I mean, there's very little argument. The, and the reason I say that is, is for the most part, if you, if you trot down here to Oberlin College or something like that and take a book in religion, or take a, uh, I mean, a course in religion or a course on New Testament, the first thing they do is they start out by debunking all of the authorships of all of the books. You know, Paul didn't write Romans, it was written by some other guy, and John didn't write John, it was written by some other guy. And that's how they get their PhDs, because they just deny everything in the Bible. But when it comes to Galatians, um, there's really no argument. They will admit, yeah, Galatians was written by Paul, because the theme is law and grace. And who of all of the New Testament writers had more to say about law and grace? No one. It was Paul. I mean, he, that's his theme. That, that's... That's what he is known by. So very early on, it's accepted by, as canonical. Um, you have many church fathers very early on in like the first and second century quoting this book. Um, Clement of, uh, of Rome does it. Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of uh, John, the Apostle John. And very early on, he quotes the book as being written by Paul. This gives us proof that this book was accepted very early on by the church um, universally and, and deemed as canonical by the church. Um, Barnabas, uh, Martian, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria. You don't need to know all of these names. It's just the bottom line is all the early church fathers all quote this book and all ascribe it to Paul. So almost universally, everybody says, yeah, Paul wrote this thing. All right. Um, what is it? Uh, what's the uh, what's the destination? Who is it written to? Um, well, the very title of the book Galatians gives you a hint as to who it was written to. It was written to the area of Galatia. Now, when you look at uh, a Roman map, and some of you may have the maps in the back of your Bible, um, there are basically two Galatias, all right? Um, there's a provincial Galatia, 
Um, if you studied uh, any kind of Roman history, you'll understand that Rome divided their empire up into provinces. Judea was a province, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Macedonia, Achaia. These are all provinces of Rome. And there is a province with the name of Galatia. And that's middle part of Turkey. If you go over to the map of Turkey and right in the middle there, there is an area known as Galatia. There's also another area called Galatia. It was used in the common expression of the days, which was the area up by the Black Sea. It was the northern part of Turkey up by the Black Sea area, if you look at your maps. And there's many trees that have died by authors trying to figure out, well, was this written to the northern Galatia or the southern Galatia? Was it written to the churches way up in the north? was written to the churches way down in the south. Now you say, well, why in the world would it matter? Well, the reason it would matter is um, to date the book. What churches were probably founded earlier? In fact, which were founded earlier? The southern churches or the northern churches? Anybody remember the book of Acts? The southern. The southern, right? On Paul's first missionary journey, what were the four cities that he hit? It's a bonus question. She got it, yeah. Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Antioch, right? And now here's the thing. There are two Antiochs. There's an Antioch over in Lebanon area, modern-day Lebanon. There's an Antioch in um, Turkey, Syrian Antioch. There's a Syrian Antioch, and then there's a Pisidian Antioch. It's called Pisidia, which is another province, all right? And uh, if you get your Bible map out, you can see exactly where these churches are at. But uh, Paul's first missionary journey, he went to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Where did he go on his second missionary journey? Same four churches, and then he went over to Corinth. Where did he go on his third missionary journey? He had the same churches, and he went over to Greece and, and Ephesus and, and all of that. All right? So I think this case can be made very, very convincingly that the churches that he's writing to, Galatians is not written to a church, it's written to an area, to churches, not to a single church, but to churches. There is no church of Galatia. There is a churches of Galatia, and the churches that we know in Galatia are Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Antioch. Okay? Now, if, if you go back and you look at um, the book of Acts, Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, um, he went to Iconium, Lystra, and, and, and Derby. And then in uh, Galatians 15, you have the first church council headed by James. And does anybody know what the argument at the first church council was over? What do they argue about? What did uh, the, the Jewish Christians want people to do? Yeah, they wanted circumcision and all of this stuff, all the Jewish law stuff. And uh, the Gentiles, of course, they, you know, they were being told by the Jews, look, you, know, you want to be a real good Christian, you got to go get circumcised, you got to eat the, the meats that we eat and eat the foods we eat and do all of this rigmarole and all this ritual. And, of course, the Gentiles were not from that background. And the First Church Council 
was called together to answer the question, what do you do about all of these Gentiles now that are flooding in the church and that do not have all of these rituals that we all abide by and have lived by and grew up by? And uh, they had a, a large church council regarding that. Now, this church council was precipitated by one thing that was happening, and that is you had some people, some early Christians or whatever, going around telling all of these new churches, listen, it's great that you guys are, are Christians now. That's wonderful. But to really be saved, you need to keep the law. And what you have very early on is a mixture of law and grace where it's sort of like, yeah, you start out by grace, but if you don't do these things, you're not saved. Or you can lose your salvation. Or in the case of a group called the Judaizers, anybody here with the, anybody know who the Judaizers were? They're the ones that wanted to mix Judaism and Christianity and basically make Christianity a works-based kind of faith. And uh, the problem that Paul had is as he went into these churches and preached the gospel and Gentiles came to know the Lord, right after him, these guys would show up and confuse everybody and tell them you need to not only accept Christ as Lord and Savior, but now you need to get circumcised and you need to obey the dietary laws and you need to observe the Sabbath. You know, they're adding all of this stuff on. And James answered it very clearly in Acts chapter 15. He says, why are you going to burden these people with rules that neither us nor our fathers could bear? And the early church, the first church council basically said, listen, the Gentiles do not have to obey the Jewish law. They do not have to do all of the, the rituals and the sacrifices and all of that. Now, the reason Paul wrote this book then to that area is shortly after he was there and preached the gospel, these guys showed up, and what they did is they got this, all these churches confused now over the role between law and grace to the point that, in, in, in fact, actually in Galatians chapter 2, uh, we, we read the account of when some of the Jews showed up where Peter was at. He withdrew from the Gentiles because he didn't want to freak out his Jewish people that were there. He actually withdrew from them. And Paul, of course, tears into him on that. Um, yeah, the, you know, Paul was not Mr. Milk Toast. I mean, if you stepped on his foot or something like that, he'd go after you. And he went after Peter because what Peter was doing is basically saying, yeah, I believe in grace, but when my Jewish friend shows up, I'm no longer believing in grace. And Paul says, well, you grace or not, what is it? Pick one. Um, but it was, this, is a, this is an issue that the early church fought with. I mean, they struggled with this whole notion, how does law and grace fit together? And as we go through this, this, this study on Galatians, I hope that the one thing that you would come out of the class understanding maybe a little better is what is the relationship between law and grace, between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. What is that relationship? That's very important because I'm amazed at the number of Christians, even today, if you were to take just a hand out a questionnaire in church and were to ask people, well, let me ask you this here. If I was to hand out a questionnaire in your church and say, how was a person in the Old Testament redeemed, what would most people say? How would they answer? 
Through the law, through sacrifice. That's how most people would answer. Is that a correct statement? Salvation has always been by, by faith. It's been by grace, appropriated by faith, always. It doesn't matter what day you were born in. It doesn't matter what year you were born in. From Adam to the last, last person that ever comes to Christ, you're saved one way, by grace. How was Abraham saved? Faith. What did he believe God for? What was the belief in? That God said, I'll make a great nation. Abraham said, okay, I believe that. And God says, okay, you're righteous. Hmm. Now, did Abraham understand the four spiritual laws? No. Did he know about Jesus Christ? No. Do you know about the cross? No. Do you know about the resurrection? Was he redeemed? Yes. Why? Because he just believed what God told him to believe. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. It's, it's, not, it's never been any different. Now today, the difference is we have the full picture. We know the end of the story. Now we know, today, do you need to believe that Jesus died and rose again? Well, yeah, because we have the full revelation. That's what God has told us, and we need to believe that. But Abraham didn't have that. Moses didn't have that. Aaron didn't have that. David did not have that. Daniel didn't have that. All they knew is what God had revealed. So then somebody says, well, you know, th this is really confusing then. You know, you got law and you got grace and, and how, how does this all, all work out? Well, I'll tell you how it all works out. Um, when, you, when you look through redemptive history, and, and Paul makes this argument here in Galatians, and we'll cover it here in Galatians and also go over to Romans and, and, and flesh it out so we understand it. All right. But... Uh, Let's draw a little timeline. We'll put the cross right here. This is the cross. All right. And uh, we'll put Moses right here. This is Moses. And uh, back here is Abraham. Okay. And then we'll drop back here somewhere. And here's Adam, let's say. There's Adam. All right. Now, Abraham was justified, right? I mean, we'll all agree with that. Abraham was justified. And he was justified by believing God. Now, when did the law come? The law came how many years later? 400, it says? About 400 years. Somewhere around 400 or 500 years. Somewhere around in there. Abraham's about 1900 B.C. Moses around 1495. Somewhere around in there. So at somewhere around 400 and some odd years or something like that is, uh, is this time period. How are people saved in that time period? Not like the, we use the word saved, probably redeemed is a better word. How would you be redeemed? You didn't have the law. What did you have? How was Isaac redeemed? Faith. What did he believe? The promise that God made to Abraham. What did Jacob believe? The promise that God made to Abraham. He believed that. All right, that, 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 it's belief. It's, it's based on what did God say? Yeah, I believe you, God. I believe what you said. I believe that is true. And because of that, 
Abraham's faith was credited to him for righteousness. Romans chapter 4, James chapter 2. The point is, Abraham was redeemed 400 years before there was ever a sacrifice on an altar in the tabernacle. 400 years before the Mosaic law prescribed all the sacrificial system that they had. All right, here's another one. When did God command that they be circumcised, all the nation, as a sign of the covenant? When did that happen? The entire nation. Moses. Was Abraham justified before or after he was circumcised? Before. Before. See, here's the problem. The, if you go back and look at rabbinical literature, they say there, 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 are, there are three things that keep you out of hell. One, if you're circumcised, you're out. You don't go to hell. Rabbis taught that. You know, they say Abraham sits at the gates of hell and he checks you out when you go down there. And if you're circumcised, you don't go in. You go to heaven. All right. Um, they also said if you're a Jew, you're in. If you're part of the nation, Jewish nation, you're in. Doesn't matter what you do, you're in. Paul says, well, let me tell you something. Um, Abraham, Romans chapter 2, Abraham was justified before he was ever circumcised. He was justified long before the law came. Therefore, the law and circumcision have nothing to do with your salvation. What was circumcision? Why, why did God give that? As a sign of the covenant he had. Yeah, it was a sign of the covenant. It wasn't to get you redeemed. It was because you were redeemed. It was a sign. But what did the Jews turn it into? A requirement. And you look at the law, you say, you know, well, See, here's the problem with, with, the self, with, with saying, well, the law was given to save people. And Paul makes, a, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews makes a masterful, masterful argument in this, in Hebrews 10. He says, if God had given the law to save you, in other words, if salvation is come by the law, then why did he promise a new covenant? Right? If the law could save, why did God say, I'm going to make a new covenant with you? A covenant uh, not of stone, but one written on your heart. See? The point is, that, that the writer of Hebrews is making, is the law was never given to save you. That was never its intent. Number one, if it was its intent, God would have never promised a new covenant, because the law would have done that. I mean, you know, you don't need 25 ways to salvation. It was never intended to save. What was the law? A sign, a schoolmaster, a picture book. Just a picture book. To point to Christ. Another argument he makes is says, well, you know, the Bible promised that God would take away your sin. Well, if that's the case, then why did he have to kill an animal every year? Right? If the animal sacrifice could take away your sin, then why would you have to do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again? Well, the answer is because it never did take away your sin. It covered it, but it never took it away. 
But Christ's sacrifice is a little different. What does it do? It takes it away. There's no need for him to be nailed to a cross every time you turn around. One sacrifice for sin forever. But what had happened in Judaism of Paul's day and what had leaked into the church is a misunderstanding of why God had given this law. And to them it was a means of salvation. It was a means of salvation. And Paul makes a very strong argument if you go to Romans chapter 10. He says, well, you've got law and you've got grace. Now, if you're saved by grace, then law's out. If you're saved by law, then grace is out. You can't be saved by both. You can't. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Absolutely nothing. You know what else? There's nothing you can do to lose it once you got it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. Why do you repent? Do you repent? Is that something you decide to do someday? So why do you repent then? Is it you or is it God? Oh, I love these debates. These are just so fun. I, I think it's, I would say it's both. You, re, you repent because God convicts you of your sin. So if God doesn't convict you, you can't repent. Well, I don't think you would repent unless God did convict you. I agree with you. I agree. Well, that goes back to the age-old debate um, of salvation. You know, how can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, totally alienated from God, having absolutely zero interest in spiritual things, decide in and of themselves, yeah, I'm going to take Christ as my Savior today. Can that happen? Who has to do the drawing? Who has to do the conviction? It's God. It's not you. It's not you. Um, well, that's if you're an Arminian, it's all up to you. Um, the problem is, the problem is, you need to think through this, all right? It, this is not, don't walk out here and saying, well, you know, I'll believe whatever the teacher says. Uh, don't do that. Please don't do that. Because if I'm wrong, then you're wrong. It makes me look bad, all right? Go figure it out for yourself, okay? Um, you, need to, you need to think through this thing. I just look back and say, if it wasn't for God drawing me, there's no way I would have chosen him. Why in the world would somebody want to become a Christian? They're a bunch of weirdos. You know, nobody would, you know, God's got to do some kind of work in your life to bring you to repentance. It's, it's not you just deciding someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a Christian now. You're, 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 you know, it, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, Satan has blinded your minds that you would not believe. Satan has blinded the minds. When you look at people who are pagans and they don't believe the gospel, don't get mad at them. Be, be sorry for them. They can't see it. 
It doesn't make sense to them because they are blinded. You go to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. You say, well, I know somebody is looking for God. No, what were they looking for? Peace, happiness, joy. They're not looking for God. They're looking for what God may give. No one seeks God for who God is. They seek God for what He gives. The pagans. Um, there's none who seeks after God. There's none who understands. And the word there for understanding refers to spiritual understanding. The lost person can't understand spiritual things. It doesn't mean he can't understand right and wrong and things like that. But he doesn't understand what we understand. He doesn't see that. Um, there's, they, they've all gone out of their way. What's that? They're all off the right path. Um, they become sour milk, good to just be thrown out. Their voice, their, their mouth is an open sepulcher. Their tongues have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. I mean, you go down through there and you say, you know, no one in and of themselves is good. Yeah. A little tiny bit off the subject a little bit, but we're talking about how Abraham had to have faith and how people Yeah, there is a difference between belief and faith. Um, there's, a, there's a belief that does not lead to faith. And when I say faith, I mean saving faith. All right. Do the devils know the truth? Oh, yeah. Satan is very orthodox. He, would, he, would, he, knows, he knows the score. I mean, he understands. But there's not a belief unto salvation. There, there may be an intellectual knowledge of the truth. There may be even an acknowledgement that those facts are true facts. But until one appropriates that personally, one is not passed from death to life. And the question is, where does that kind of faith come from? It's a gift. Satan faith. It is a gift. Yes, it is. That's where it comes from. Um, let me ask you a question. You know, stop and think about it. You're all rational, intelligent people. Well, most... You're all rational, you're all rational intelligent people. How many of you have been to heaven? Anybody go to heaven and take a tour? Why do you believe it exists? Have you ever talked to anyone who's gone there and come back? Any photographs, any pictures, any movies? You been to hell? You ever ever personally talk to Jesus Christ? I mean, like I talk to you, you ever personally meet and talk to him? Do you believe there's a devil? Have you ever talked to have you ever met the devil, talked to him? Well, yeah, <laughs> pointing over there. Um so. Why do you believe that, then? 
Why do you believe in a place you've never seen? Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? You've never met him, never talked to him vocally like I've talked to you. Why do you believe that? And not only that, why do you believe that? But why are you willing to stake your eternal destiny on that? Why? Why do you believe? Is that your belief? Is that your belief? I mean, did you all of a sudden one day say, you know, I'm going to believe in a place I've never seen. I'm going to believe in a God I've never talked to. I'm going to believe in a, his son, Jesus Christ, who I've never met. I'm going to believe that he actually died on a cross that I've never seen. And I'm going to stake my entire eternal destiny on that to the point that I'm willing to lay down my life for it. I feel that he drew that, drew me to him. So that's my hope. The point is that that, the point is that that belief, that faith, is not something that is native to you. That is something that God gives you. And once you have it, you have it. It's not, it's not that from the human perspective we rationally decide that Christianity is a, a logical thing to believe and that we all then come to faith and believe in all of this stuff even though we've never seen this place. We've never talked to God, yet we're willing to die for that. That faith is not our faith, people. Ultimately, the, the source of that is God. God gives us the faith to believe. And here's the thing. What kind of faith does God give? Does he give you a shakable faith that it'll, it'll, it'll stand? If you want to think about it, look at the book of Job. You got, a, you got a guy here in Job, I mean, I mean, he just lost it all. I mean, he has all kinds of problems. You ever ask yourself what the major theme of Job is? Suffering. I don't think it's suffering. It's faith. It's faith. It is God, you know, Satan comes up and says, yeah, 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 look at Job. Yeah, I know about Job. Well, look at what you've done for the guy. I mean, no wonder he... He's a believer. I mean, she will look, you know, he's got everything he needs. All you know, wealth, health, look at that. That's is okay. Have at him. Satan comes back the second time. God says, well, how's it going? I said, well, yeah, I took everything away, but, you know, he still believes in you. But, yeah, you know, I mean, he's got his health. He's still, that's okay. He can't take his life, but anything else you can do. Now, I'll tell you what, Satan did not just put one boil on the guy, all right? I mean, he went at the man. Yeah. All right? What was God trying to tell Satan? The, see, the book of Job is not about Job. No. The book of Job is not centered on, on, on Job itself. It is centered on God proving one thing to Satan. That he's in Job. That the faith that I give can't be shaken. It's not a failing faith. It's not going to fail. And it, it's summed up when Job says, yet he slay me, I will trust him. Now, where did Job get that? I mean, the guys, are, and, and you know, he's got four guys that are saying, come on, Job, just fess up and, and it'll all go away. <laughs> Job got that faith from a source outside of him. So, if God, God gives us 
this faith. So when we either you talk to someone or we ourselves even say that we're doubting our doubting doubting our faith, is that our flesh working or is that Satan working on us? Or both. <clears throat> or both. The point is, is that true saving faith will never ultimately fail. That doesn't mean that you have reversals now and then. It doesn't mean that, that there may be a period of doubt or, you know, you fall into sin, you know, you, where's God at? You know, maybe I'm not a Christian or, or something. You know, the very fact that you're concerned and, and, and upset about that and convicted by it probably is more an indicator that you are a believer than you're not. If you weren't a believer, would you care? No, you wouldn't care. Uh, you, you need to think through this and think. It, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing to think through. But there are some really wonderful truths that come out of this. And one of those truths is, number one, if that faith is an unassailable faith, will I ever deny God ultimately? As a true believer, will I ever ultimately deny him? No. No. Totally walk away from him. Yeah. No. Peter. If you have true saving faith no. and you totally walk away and stay away. Right. No. Now you may you may do what Peter did in disobedience, but what happened? He came back. Alright. If you and here's the point, and I'm quite honestly, you know. If you want to get the old big bird's eye view of Hebrews, this is it. Hebrews is all about if you walk away from God and keep going, you never were saved. Right. All right. It's it's not that you had it and lost it. You never had it. All right. Um, you can't ultimately deny Him. Um, you know, there's some wonderful truths out of that. Well, we must stay close to Him. To enjoy the fellowship of our relationship, yes, we do. Faith has to be tried. Yeah. But here's the thing. When it is tried, true faith is always found to be genuine. False faith is shown to be false. Can you show me where he says that in the Bible? What's that? Um, that he hangs on to us. First uh, Peter one seven is a good verse on that. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He holds on to me. Um, John chapter ten, what uh, twenty seven through thirty, we're in His hand. And, you know, people say, yeah, okay, so the devil can't pull us out of His hand. Um, all the demons can, all the people can, but you know, we could jump out. No. You're, you're in God's hand. You, he's not going to let go of you. Um, Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of God? Well, let's try persecution. Not tribulation. Not stress. Not hunger. Nope. Peril. Nope. Nope. That won't do it. Anything high, anything low, any creature, anything past, anything, nothing will separate us from the love of God. You, you can't be separated. Um, there, there's wonderful truths. And what that means is, is my salvation... It's not based on me doing a bunch of junk. And that was the confusion behind the book of Galatians and why Paul wrote this book. 
is because this entire church is thinking, well, you know, we got to do, you know, we got to go get circumcised, we got to do this, we got to do, and if we don't do all of that, God doesn't like us. All right? And by the way, to be honest with you, we all have our lists, don't we? You know how many lists there are? Count the number of Christians. See, when I was growing up, I was told if you go to a movie, you're a bad person. And you're even worse if you run a movie theater. Don, sorry, Don. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, I'm just saying, I, I grew up that way. I grew up, now, now it was okay to watch the same movie on TV when it came out, you know, five, ten years later, but don't darken the door of a movie theater. See, that was taboo. Mm -hmm. Bad people do that. When I was growing up, uh, you know, I was told you're never allowed to drink alcohol. If you do, bad person. People drink alcohol, go to hell. Does the Bible deny you drinking alcohol? No. It denies drunkenness, doesn't it? Right. Now, the same people that were up there in the pulpit saying, you shall not drink alcohol, also weighed 850 pounds. They were gluttons, but you don't drink alcohol. Right. See? But see, but see, gluttony wasn't on their list. Because see, gluttony is one of the things they were guilty of, but alcohol wasn't. So they put alcohol on the list and left gluttony off the list. And we all do that. And one of the freeing things I, I would hope you would understand, it, it's not, it's a free-for-all. We're not saying go do anything you want, God doesn't matter. I mean, I remember seeing the one television show, a guy, beard like, like yours, it was, it was longer though. And it was white. And he had real long hair. And he had a big cigar, must have been like that. He was a preacher. And he had an ashtray on the pulpit. He took a drag, put a cigar down, told people, I'm going to tell you about Christian liberty, and basically went on to tell them, do anything you want, doesn't matter. Does it? Yeah, it does matter. But, but, but the thing is, and here's the thing, yeah, here's the thing. Where does the change come from? From the list we keep or from God in us? It's God in us. It's inside. It comes from the inside. Okay? Um, there's a lot, you know, I have some wonderful neighbors who are Mormons. They're good people, I'll tell you that. You know what, I'd rather have them living next to me than a lot of Christians I know. All right? They're really good people. <laughs> They're wonderful people. I think Willie feels pretty strong. Yeah. They are wonderful people, and they're they they are they're very moral, very upright, very honest. They put some of the Christians I know to shame. All right. Um, but that doesn't make them a Christian. Right. Doesn't make them a believer. Doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. The thing is, and here's the thing about the New Covenant, and it says it in Jeremiah 31, God says, I will write the law on your heart. And so the question to ask yourself is, why? Why do I do what I do? Why? Well, you know, if I don't do that, people think I'm a bad person. Well, that's not really a good reason not to do something, I guess. It's because you want to. 
The love of God. It, it's, it's, it's something that drives me from within. All right, not from without. When I come up with a list, anybody can, most people can keep a list. All right, but what happens then is you have a false sense of salvation. You have a false sense of security. And you think, here's the thing, you think that God likes you better because you keep all these rules. See, when I was growing up too, you couldn't have, as men, you could not have the hair down over your ears. You're not allowed to, my hair was too long. In fact, if I was going back, they'd probably take me in a room and cut my hair. In fact, they do have some churches now. If you go save and you got long hair, they'll take in, cut your hair, you know, make you look like a Christian, yeah. you know. Um, does God really care how long your hair is? No. Really? Yeah. Well, according to the Baptist church I went to when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, it did. Yeah. Because that's why I left when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah. Um, there, there are churches, there are churches that uh, if, you, if you're a woman and you walked in with uh, slacks on, they'd throw you out. They still will. They still do. There's, I know a few around here. You know, now does God really care whether you wear pants or not? I mean, really, oh, is yeah. God up in heaven saying, "I'm really upset with them because they wore slacks today"? Because I mean, really, there's a lot of things He has to worry about much more than what clothes you wear. All right. Um, we emphasize the wrong thing. I know what you're going to say. I know how you're going to answer this, and I know the the answer. But isn't in reality? The law, quote the law, how this as well. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not, whatever. Yeah. Isn't that a list as well? We can. In conjunction with what you said, Jesus said he didn't come to destroy it all, he came to feel. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a question, and, and we'll use the Ten Commandments. First of all, you got to understand when you look at the law, there are three major components to that law. You have the ceremonial law of Israel having to do with the sacrificial system. That was given as what? A sign. It was never meant to remove sin or cover, or it was just to cover sin. It was a sign. Was that temporary or permanent? Temporary. temporary all right. You also have a whole bunch of laws having to do with how they conducted themselves as a nation. Laws dealing with usury, with the cities of refuge, all of those kind of, the dietary laws, all of that. That was not permanent. That was temporary. That was to make them a distinct people. All right. Then you have the Ten Commandments. And people say, well, you know, there's a list. There's, there's the list, the Ten Commandments. And uh, as you look at that, that, that is a list. But probably a better way to look at it is to ask yourself, and, and, and quite honestly, the lawyer, remember the Jesus Christ asked the lawyer said, what is the greatest law? And Christ asked him, well, why don't you tell me? And what did he answer? You shall love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Christ says, you got it. You understand it. Look at the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You say, oh, that's awful. God would demand that demand that I have no other gods before him. You know, that's a list. That's a, that's a do. 
Well, I may ask a question. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, am I going to have another God before Him? No. So I'll tell you what, if you love the Lord your God, the, the, the commandments are superfluous almost. Um, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are you going to take His name in vain? Are you going to presume upon His character, basically? If you love Him, are you going to spend time with Him? Yes. Keep the Sabbath. If you love your neighbors yourself, are you going to steal? Commit adultery with your neighbor's wife? You're going to covet what he has? You're going to lie against him? You're going to murder him? Um, the commandments are not as much a list of do's and don'ts. They're basic codification of what love is. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm not going to have idols. I'm not going to presume on his name. I'm not going to make graven images and worship him the wrong way. I don't, I don't need those rules because I love the Lord from the inside. It's the same thing. If you walk to my house and look at my refrigerator, I've used this illustration before, there's not a list on there that says, do not beat your wife. Don't slap Donna around. Don't yell at your wife. Don't hit your wife. Why? I don't need those. I don't need those rules because I love her. I don't need that because I, I love my wife and that takes care of itself. So if you love the Lord your God, the commandments take care of themselves. But what the commandments do show us, and I, I think this is borne out in the New Testament when Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and it's going to be borne out here in Galatians as we work down through the text, it does show us how bad we are, doesn't it? Because, you know, the Jew says, well, it says uh, you'll keep the Sabbath day. Oh, we do that well. Did they? No, what they had done is they'd made all these rules about you're not allowed, you can only write so many letters on a paper on a Sabbath, you only lift so much weight, and you can only do so much, you only walk so many miles before you violate the Sabbath. But it really didn't matter that you were thinking about God. It didn't matter that you cared of His existence. Just as long as you didn't do anything, you were okay. And Christ comes along, of course, flies in the direct face of that and says, you, you've, you've missed the intent. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for the man. It was a time of rest. But you've made it a great burden to people. You've made it something that people don't look forward to. They, 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 they don't want the Sabbath to come around because it's a burdensome thing. And what you've done is you've turned it around. Um, but the law does show us how bad we are because he says, uh, you know, you remember said by them of old time, you shall not murder. And everybody says, yeah, yeah, don't kill somebody. But I say to you, if you hate your brother without a cause, you've murdered him. And there's a lot of commentators, they argue back and forth and they say, well, see what Christ is doing, he's redefining the law. He's redefining what it means. He's adding something to it. Was he? He said, I did not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. So he's not, he's not adding to it. He's not subtracting from it. He's just clarifying what it really meant. 
He says, uh, you know, you've heard it said by them all the time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell you what, if you look at a woman, the lust, you've already committed yeah. adultery. So what it's done is come from the action to the heart. Uh, you've heard it said, uh, thou shalt not swear falsely. But I say to you, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Um, what he does, he goes back to the heart. When you live 20, 30, 40 years, how sin and being crazy, you know, thinking these ways of doing things, when you're drug you just quit. Yeah. You know, it takes a long time. Maybe that's what the commandments are there to actually help you along. The commandments are our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's probably a good way to put our pedagogos. It was a slave that was there to discipline us. I'm not saying throw any standards out the windows. What I am saying is you need to be under, understand that no standard makes God happy. Just because you keep the standard, God isn't happy. Now you may need a standard to help you as you mature and grow in your faith, but the point is at some point you have to make the transition from I do this because that's what I've always been told i got to do as a nice Christian to I don't do this because I want to honor God. I really, that really doesn't appeal to me. And I hope we all get, you know, I hope all of you who've been saved a long time come to that point in your life where you start looking at yourself and say, you know, 10 years ago I would have done this, but I'm not going to do it now. And someone says, why don't you do that? You know, you're holier than now. Well, you know, I, I, just, I just don't want to do it. I just, you, you almost like you can't even explain it. You know, it's like you can't explain it. Um, I know this has been true in my life. Um, there are so many television shows that maybe 10 years ago I would have watched today. I surf right by them. It's no appeal to me. I, I just, why, why would I want to watch that? Um, why would I want to fill my mind with that stuff? What's the purpose? Unless it's Star Trek, you can watch that anytime. But, but most of this stuff, I mean, stop and think about it. People, you guys that are pastors, you know, how many people in your church fill their brains with that stuff? And then they wonder why their life is, their spiritual life is so pathetic. Right. You know, the point is, as you, as, as you, the thing is, I think, as you draw near to God, what happens to sin? It loses its appeal. And I'll tell you what else it does. Things that you did, used to think were okay, all of a sudden you start saying, you know, I, I'm not sure that really makes pleases God. And it's not that you're doing it because, you know, you're afraid God's going to take a board and beat you on the head if you do it. It's just that you just, you're so engrossed with pleasing Him right. that you just, it doesn't appeal to you. You just, I don't want to do that. Your appetites change. Now, who's doing that? You or God? God is. Now, what do we like to do, though, in our churches? Hi, I'm Alan Schaefer. I'm the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you what's right and wrong. Here's the list. All right. You need to understand, and I've been a Christian now for um, 33 years, I guess, somewhere around, somewhere around 33, 34 years been a Christian, 
I've always been to church. I mean, I'm a, I've been to church when I was yay high. I I've, I've grew up in church. I've been a Christian for 34 years. Yeah, I'm still way high. I'm, st I'm this high now. Um, but the thing is that uh, I, I've, I've come to understand, I think, that I cannot expect a Christian who is three months old in the Lord or two years old in the Lord or a few days old in the Lord to have the same perspective on spiritual things that I have. It ain't going to happen. Let them grow up. I mean, what's so tough about that? Let them grow up. I mean, provided it's not blatant, outright sin. I mean, you know, that you deal with. I mean, if it, you know, if somebody comes to know the Lord and they're living with somebody, well, you know, that's sin. They need to get out of that. You don't say, well, we'll let them grow up and give them a few years and they'll get out. No, it's sin. You got, you got to get out of that. But some of these things, you know, let them grow up. Give them some time. Give them some, we do that music. You know, just because a person comes a Christian doesn't mean they burn all of their music. It may take a while for them to understand, you know, well, maybe that doesn't... Please. Well, let God work in their heart. Let, let them grow up. You don't need to, to listen to that. You don't need to, but let them grow up. And God, God will mature them. You don't need to shove a list of 400 things to do as a Christian in front of them. Let them grow up. Let them mature. Somebody's going to say something. Somebody gonna But what we do and, and I have to admit in this church, you know, there was a time when you had had lists. And that's what Paul hits at in Galatians. Bag the list. Because here's the question do you have the right list? Think about that one. Mm -hmm. If I were to say, if I were to say, I want you, you know, you can do this as an exercise. I won't. But if you, I want you to go home. I want you to write down a hundred things, hundred things that you think makes God happy. And you bring all your lists here next week. I'll guarantee you, you won't find any two lists that are agree. In fact, probably you won't find any two lists that have fifty of the same things on it. Because we all have a different perspective on that. So how do you know you've got the right list? What if it's okay for a woman to wear pants to church? And all your years you've preached against that. What if it's right? What if you get to heaven and God says, you know that thing about the, the pants thing? You know, life's too short. What are you worried about that for? All right. How do you know that you've got the right list? Right. You don't. Now, there are some things that are very clear. No-brainers. If it is sin, and the Bible says it is sin, look, put that on the list. That, that, there's no doubt about it. But there's so much of this other stuff, quite honestly, that when you get to heaven, it just isn't going to matter. It really is not going to matter. And you got to be, you got, you know, I think sometimes we're pretty egotistical to think we're the first person in Christian history that's got the right list and all the right things and all the right orders. And if you do it my way, God, boy, he really likes you. And if you don't do, if you, if you follow Don's list, God, you know, he doesn't like you as well. Hmm. Because Don, Don lets you do some things that God really hates. In Deuteronomy, yeah. says, thou shalt not play golf. Yeah. 
Not so not watch Star Trek. Um, so see, this is where we need to think. And see, this, this is the thing that drives people nuts. Because human nature says, just, look, just give me the list. I don't want to think. Just give me the list. I don't want to have to, don't ask me if it's right or wrong, because I have to think. I'd have to reason, th don't, just, give me, just tell me if it's right or wrong. And that's what we want. But as believers, we need to think about what it is. And that's what Paul is going to hit at in the book of Galatians. Galatians 3, 1 is wonderful. He says, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? How did you get saved? How did you come to Christ? By works or by faith? All right, now if you came to Christ by faith, what makes you think now that you're there, you're going to make yourself any better by works? Hmm. Or here's another thing. How do you think you're going to keep it by works? Let me ask you, if you didn't do anything to get it, how are you going to do anything to keep it? Now, we understand that we respond by faith, we believe, but why do we believe? Because God does a work in our heart to bring us to the point of salvation. It's all of God. God gets the glory. I don't. I don't. And I think what we need to do is instead of looking around and seeing who has what list and comparing lists and things like that, go beyond that and, and look at yourself and why, why is it that you do the things that you do? The bottom line is that even whatever list we create for ourselves, we can never be there anyways. And, and quite honestly, if you had your choice of putting things on lists, what things are you going to put on your list? Things that you do or things that you don't do? Yeah, if you're 850 pounds, you're not going to put on the list gluttony is bad. Right? I mean, if you have a real problem with gluttony, over, I mean, real problem with that, you're not going to put that on your list. You're going to put the, on your list the things that you can do that, 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 that you can meet. And see, that's what the Pharisees did in the New Testament. They, they, they basically, and that's what Christ rips them on, their lists were all the things that they could do. And so they pat themselves on the back saying, oh, we're just wonderful, God, God loves us. And, and Christ says, you guys got the wrong list. Because it's not what you do, it's what your heart is. You... Even, even in uh, consideration of that, Matthew 6 says, Christ knows what we have need of before we can ask him. And then uh, in Romans it says that we are ignorant, we know not what to pray for, the Spirit gives us others. So many times we make the lesson, but on our conscience, we know that we're not in the correct order, but we want to compromise in the mere fact of the depth of our situation of how well and appropriate it fits our needs and our agenda. Mm -hmm. We really fake ourselves out. Yeah. Because he's also saying here later, he says, uh, if thy brother is overtaken and fault, you with your spiritual restore such a one in spirit of meekness. We only use that message in our own crisis and our own criteria in many cases. I think all of us, and you have to admit, you go home and think about this, you cut yourself a lot more slack than you probably should. You're right. It, you know, if, 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 God, if Christ would come here and say, okay, here's a spiritual meter, I want you to tell me where you think you are. And you put a point on there, and he says, okay, let me tell you where you're really at. 
All right. And and we'll see what the difference is. I think I think every one of us in here will rate ourselves higher than than we really are. Because we cut ourselves slack. We are we deceive ourselves. We think we're a lot more godly than we really are. All right. And so that's why you know when we look at this thing of spiritual life and growth and and the list and that the focus is not on everybody else. The focus is on me. You can't tell him a lot, can you? <laughs> oh. Well, listen, we better get into the book. We'll never get through here, you know. But, but the bottom line, the background. Oh, Don, you were going to say something. I'm sorry. You, were, you had your hand up. I was going to say another thing on this list was what's right for me isn't necessarily right for me. Yeah. Or what's, what's wrong about me is not necessarily wrong for her. Yeah. And see, that's why that's why it's it's been principalized, and, and that's where that's where you need to get to in your Christian faith. It needs to move from a rule to a principle. When you were young, your parents probably said, "Okay, eight thirty bedtime. You're in bed at eight thirty. Right. Now, do you have a bedtime now? No. Okay, what happens if you stay up till 1 or 2 in the morning? Or you pay for it the next day. So why do you go to bed now? Well, you know, I sort of like being awake when I'm on the job or whatever. Where, what, what has your bedtime moved from? It's not a legal thing anymore. It's a principle. You know that you need sleep. You know that there are prices to pay if you go beyond that. But no, God's not never saying, he, okay, he went to bed at 831. That's a black mark against him. He should have been 830. We, what we do is we envision God as, as this uh, celestial uh, scorekeeper that's keeping track of every time we miss a list. Oh, he, he saw me going into a movie. You know, I've often heard people, now how would you like God uh, to come down in, in rapture and you're in a movie theater, you know? What would you think? I said, well, it depends on what movie I was watching, probably. Right. <laughs> I mean, I could be sitting at home in my easy chair watching some HBO movie that I shouldn't be watching, and, he could, and that's just as embarrassing as sitting in a movie theater watching Bambi. Yeah, right. you know, the, the whole point, we, we get ourselves on these guilt trips here, principalize it. Why, why is it that you do what you do? Why do you watch what you watch? Why? Why do you spend your time doing those things? If you think because God's a lot happier with you if you do them, you're probably doing them with the wrong motive. Right. Probably doing them for the wrong reason. And you've got to ask yourself, did I get the right list? Am I really making God happy? Because if you ask the Pharisees, you ask the average Pharisee in the first century, you're making God happy. So God is ecstatic with me. He thinks I'm a wonderful person. And then Christ shows up and... If they find out, they've all got the wrong list. Yeah. But don't you believe God is pleased with our obedience? Yes, he is. But he's pleased with our obedience in that we're doing it with the right reason, for the right motive. That, that's, when he, that's when we please God. That's when we move from the list to the principle. Right. And that's where we've got to move in our spiritual life. 
And, and you got to ask yourself this. You, you should have a good answer. If somebody says, well, you know, why is it that you don't do this? You should have a pretty good reason for not doing it. And I say, well, you know, in our church, we don't believe that you should uh, do this. If somebody asks you, you know, why don't you drink? You say, well, in our church, we're not allowed to do that. Well, that's sort of a bad reason. You're right. You know? Now, now, if you say, well, you know, the reason I don't drink is, you know, I have no desire to, and, and drinking is associated with a lot of bad things, and, you know, I, I just don't feel right about it for myself. And you, you thought, well, that's all right. You don't have to drink. No, if that's a bad reason to give, like you say, it is, why are there churches out there that require you, if you're going to be a deacon or something in the church, to sign something that says you will not do this? That is a good reason, isn't it? They do that now? That's a good question. Some churches, Some churches do. That's a good question. Does a Moody require their students to sign a statement that says they won't go to movies? No. Not that I know of. Uh, I think they do. Yes, Some places they're in their bylaws. <laughs> they do? Yes, they do. Well, that's a new one to me because I've just probably disqualified myself as a teacher because I go to Don's. I know Richard Fisher Yeah. That's probably something that came back from the 1800s and no one's got around to taking it out of the bylaws. I think the drinking is a bad and I think there, there's I also think there's a sense I think you're right and I think there's a sense in this too there's a sense in which um, the average person in a church can get away with things the pastor can't why? because the pastor is more godly than they are? because they worship they, they look at the pastor sometimes as God or as a model all right. So, so there's a sense in which a pastor is, is almost at a higher standard. But, but the, the, the problem, we have to be very careful of that. It's not because he's a more godly guy right. or because God likes him better than he likes me no. or because he's closer to God than I am. Stability. Right. Right. Display that model for the flock. Yeah, it's to be a good model. So he had to go and have to drink blood, like into the drink blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, really, that 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 that's a very that's a very important insight to to have. It doesn't. It, it's not. It's not a measure of godliness. Right. That, that's where we make the problem. We make it a measure of godliness. And it's not. But, but what it is, it is a standard. And it's a standard that we want to honor God. And we want to, want to do our best to be a good model for other people. So there may be some things that we don't do that we have the freedom to do. But people could take it the wrong way or, or, or be right. led astray. In which case, then what do I do? I defer my liberty for the good of the body. If meat offends our brother, don't eat it. Don't eat it. And um, so, it's just like what we were just saying. Um, say, for instance, um, if a person is, is, is drinking, and a lot of times we classify people 
in areas of location because we still come around this certain entity out of vicinity, so we consider them to be an ungodly. You know what I mean? But yeah. we have to wait and see the truth that is taking place. Some people can minister in situations and others can't. Yeah. Because, like I'm saying, that even when Paul spoke to Timothy, he told him to take the wine for his stomach's sake. So it's drinking up through all through the Bible. But I think when a person indulges and he loses his own self, then it becomes a sin because he's not of his same nature or, mm -hmm. or, or individual. But I'm saying if Jesus can turn water into wine and wedding feast, it's very indignative to me to to consider that somebody will go to hell for drinking. Yeah. But the wine was better than the, Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why? Why do people? It was really interesting. I remember our, our pastor of our church was witnessing to a to a neighbor of his, and uh, he, he performed bridges with his neighbor. Which, by the way, if you want to reach your neighbors for Christ, you got to be friends with them. Oh, yeah. All right. And he was he was over at this his neighbor's house. And they were talking, and he invited him to church or something like. I don't know how the conversation went around. But uh, he, he had asked the, the person, the, this neighbor, I, I'm trying to remember how he put it, about, you know, why, why he didn't come to church. And the neighbor said, well, I thought um, if I went to your church, I'd have to give up drinking. And he asked him, where would you get that idea? Where would you get that idea? Well, he got it from good Christians. It probably said, good Christians don't drink. Right. All right. Now let me ask, ask a question. What sends you to hell? Drinking or lack of salvation? Lack of salvation. What sends you to hell? Smoking or lack of salvation? Lack of salvation. All right. Well, yeah, too. Um, the whole point. The whole point is this. The whole point is, you know, the whole issue is, let God work on a person's heart when they become a believer. You don't want to clean them up. And then say, okay, now you're clean enough to come to our church. Right. Yeah. But as well, you, you, don't, you don't want to be in the pulpit on Sunday to go to a restaurant, sit there and drink a Bud Light or whatever. And, and, and probably. You just preach to. Right. And you've been preaching right. about how Christ right. changed your life. That's right. He's going to look at you like, where are you coming from? And see, that's where. Yeah. You don't know that. And see, that's where, that's where you defer your personal liberty. That's where you defer your personal liberty for the good of the body. And that's where that's where we defer our liberty for the good of others. If a person is going to church and is a drinker, the church is in conjunction, in connection, just like the hospital is. So if the hospital can treat patients, the church treats patients every day, drastically, mm -hmm. uh, drug addicted, alcoholic, and, and they're able to come as they are, even spend it like smoke, marijuana, whatever it is, and alcohol, because the church is, Jesus said, they that behold need not a physician. Mm -hmm. His name is sick, and he always deals with us as the sick of the mental state or sick of physical. People are allowed to come to church in any cases, but the Bible also says, uh, one old cliche says, uh, I can't hear what you're saying because what you're doing is speaking too loud. So uh, a lot of times people see that in general and uh, so they're the children from the church. If, if hospitals today acted like most churches, 
they would say, we'll admit you um, once you get over your flu, once you get your broken leg, once your broken leg's healed, you know, once you stop bleeding to death in your car, we'll, we'll, you can come to our, our hospital to take care of you. But uh, we don't want you bleeding all over our hospital floors. <laughs> after you get after you get well, come to our hospital and we'll take care of you. Well, we get it. We have to remember though that out in the business world, when you you're working, there's certain things that people expect of you yeah. mm -hmm. when you hold a position. Mm -hmm. You don't expect a vice president of the company to be um, going around misbehaving. Right. Because you have a certain expectation of what that person should look like, how mm -hmm. they should behave, and what they should do. Well, the same in a church. Yes. Um, when you are going to have, like you were saying, with um, with your position, with your title comes responsibility. Yes. Because you're going to be a role model for whoever yes. is looking at you. And whether you accept it or not, people do look at what you, uh, what you do. Mm -hmm. And... People in the world that are not believers, they're going to look at you and they're going to look at themselves and say, well, there's no difference between you and me because you and me are doing the same thing. Right. So what makes you better than me? And, uh, and So I, don't, I agree with the part that the Lord is the one that works in our mm -hmm. heart. The Holy Spirit is there to teach us and to show us the right way what, to convict us of sin when we're doing something wrong and to each his own and the Lord will show you in your time, when you're ready to get rid of something that you shouldn't be doing. But I also agree with having certain standards for responsibilities on a person. Somebody that's holding uh, a position in a church or the same as business, I compare them a lot because you expect things from people. Well, I think you see that in the New Testament. For example, you go to First Timothy chapter 3, it talks about the elder of the church who is the pastor. He is to be above reproach. Now define that. Does it mean he is mistake free? Well, if he is, we fire every pastor we got. We just boot them all out. All right? Doesn't mean he's mistake free. It means that there is something that you see about his life that he is a man of honor, a man of conviction, a godly man, and who is, who is seriously dealing with those areas of his life that may not be, we're all in process, but he has reached a stage of spiritual maturity whereby he can be held up as a model to other people. Paul didn't tell the Philippians, we're going to get to this in Philippians, he didn't say, now look, don't do as I do, do as I tell you, you've got to live godly. He said, no, you be followers together with me as I am of Christ. You want to know what to do, look at my life. And we all need to be in that boat, not because we got the right list, but because we love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We're striving to please Him, and in doing so, our lives exhibit a marked difference. That, it, it's out of the rules, into the principles, and that's a very tough transition, I think, for us to make at times. Willie, you're gonna. Yeah, I think I have to ask you this question about the gospel in the first two and third chapter, and it's dealing with the uh, office of the bishop or the pastor. The third verse says, not given to wine. Could you explain that? Well, the English statement says, not given to wine. And that's what the Greek so says, the not says, given to wine. You be a pastor. Did it say he's not allowed to drink wine? 
to say that? No, not given to. Now, now, now stop and think about it. None of us are the Holy Spirit, right? I hope, I hope we aren't. Okay. If the Holy Spirit wanted to convey the idea that you are not allowed to drink wine, what would he have said? Yeah. He would have said, thou shalt not drink wine. He didn't say that. No. He said you're not allowed to be given to wine, which means you're not allowed to have wine control you, be a drunkard. And also, as a, a student of the Word, I think, I think we all know, Billy, that what we need to do is not just look at one verse, right. but look at what it says throughout the entire text. He said that because I serve your life. No, <laughs> no, 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 no seriously, it's, it's a good question. Because yeah. it, it's something that, that, that we deal with in our churches. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because I was raised up very strict. You know, you don't drink. That's it. Now, I admit, when I was coming up, I tried. I didn't desire to taste, but I never liked it since. You know what I'm saying? Just didn't care for it. You know? So, and then when you look at it, if you drink too much, which some folks do, and then get out on the road, it cause accidents. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's an accountability in that thing. Like, if you drink more than what you're supposed to, look what can happen. So, see what God has done. You, you gotta be careful. I'm not trying to take away from the scripture. Right. Just, you need to understand if God did not want you to drink wine, he could have very easily said that, the issue would have been over, and we wouldn't be arguing about this. Right. He didn't say that. Mm -hmm. He said you're not allowed to be drunk. Right. All right, you're not to be given to it. So that's a principle. The other thing, we've got to be careful not to come up with a higher standard than God does. We say, you know, listen, you know, God will let you into the kingdom if you are not given wine, but if you want to come to our church, you can't drink at all. We have a better standard than God. Right. That, now you've got that, that almost makes us sound like Pharisees, though, to the point. I mean, what I'm getting at is it, the word says, don't get drunk. But in order to accomplish that, we, like the Pharisees, have come up with our own rules of mm -hmm. do not drink. Then you don't have to worry about getting drunk. Absolutely. We, what we have is we have a bunch of Baptistic Pharisees. But quite honestly, if you, went, if you took most of the Baptists today and put them in the first century, they would have been number one Pharisees. They would have fit in very well. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being honest about it. They, they would have been the chief rabbi in the city. Because, because they do just that. Well, you know... See, now, you know, I sit around their board meeting and say, well, you know, you're not allowed to be drunk, so how can we count it? Well, we'll just come up with a rule that you're not allowed to drink at all. It, it's not that we take the principle that God has said and enforce it. We add to it to make sure nobody does it. And then we say, aren't we godly people? Uh, he was going to say something. That, when, I, when I hear that verse, you know, I hear the phrase given. You know, I always think of when you're giving to something, means you're attached to it, or it seems to you that you have the kind of yeah. sensation that you're, you're attached to it or that you need it. And, and so I've always looked at that verse from the perspective of, you know, that pastor can't be given, given to wine, it can't almost be like a crutch to him. Because if that, if that wine's a crutch to him, then it, 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 disables his, his, it disables his ability to minister effectively and to, and to count on God. And what about drugs? 
Marcelo? You've been given the drug? Codeine, something like that. Yeah, what about yeah. addictive drugs that, that oh. people take? Abusive. You know, what about, I'll tell you what, you know, um, I think one of the sins we don't talk about a lot is, is gluttony. You know, now I understand that God gives different people different builds, and I'm not saying, you know, if you're five or ten pounds, I'm talking about people that are two, three, four hundred pounds overweight, you know, oh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, that kills you just as fast as a cigarette will. Yeah, you're right. Heart disease. You know, that, that's just, you're just as dead. Um, but we like to pick the things that we are guilty of and just say, well, God, that's okay. We, but the things that I don't do, those are the really bad things because, see, I can keep that, I can keep that list. I can keep that one. And, and what Donna said is very true. At heart, in our churches today, there are a lot of Pharisees. Because what we've done is we've gone beyond the principle and adding all of these rules to ensure that no one violates the principle. And when you start adding all of these rules, what happens to the principle after a while? It's gone. I love the story, and we'll, we'll, we have a break coming up with this. Um, I love the story about the one of the, I think it was a Russian premier that was taking a walk outside the Kremlin, and he knows there's these two guards standing there in this spot out in the middle of nowhere, wondering what, you know, what are they doing there? And he walks up and he asks the guards why they're there. He said, well, you know, we've always been posted here. We always stood here. And he says, well, there's nothing to guards. I don't, well, you know, it's just we've always done this. You know, we've always had to do this. And he went and asked, you know, the commander, why, well, you know, we've always had to do this. And what he did is he tracked it back to 100 years before the Russian Tsar had a prize rose bush on that spot that he didn't want anybody to damage. So he posted two guards to keep track of it. And long after the rose bush is gone and dead, you've still got two guards making sure no one steps on the rose bush. And what happens is we do the same thing theologically. We add all of these rules, and after a while, no one knows why the rule was there. The principle is lost. We just keep the rule because that's what we need to do. Because that makes God happy. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.